Biggie here, and we're talking about law for Virginia law enforcement officers. We're talking about law, uh, constitutional law, cases, statutes. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia? And uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sticking with the podcast. We've been talking a lot about uh, searches, seizures, use of force, electronic evidence. And lately, we've been talking about the special session that's going on right now in the Virginia General Assembly. What are they looking at doing? What have they done? What's coming down the way? And I, even though what we've been talking about lately isn't necessarily law that is definitely the law in Virginia, uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback that people like hearing about this stuff and sort of like being able to digest what's happening and also, um, you know, what was what was rejected and what's being accepted and what's on the potentially on the docket to come back again in the general session anyway. Because remember that anything dies. Anything that dies in the special session can still come back in January anyway. And some stuff like the qualified immunity thing, you should definitely expect to come back for a second fight. So in that vein, what I thought I would do today is talk about some of the new use of force legislation that's making its way through the General Assembly. The House passed some use of force statutes, uh, proposed statutes. The Senate passed some. And uh, this last week is what we kind of, I mean, we used to call crossover when there was a process that anyone really understood and that was a settled process. The special session doesn't really have a process, but if you were going to call it something, we'd call it crossover, where they would exchange each other's bills and then start looking at each other's bills. And last week, pretty much the Senate took a look at a whole ton of the House's proposed criminal justice legislation and anything that wasn't a Senate idea or something the Senate wanted to do, um, a lot of it got killed pretty quickly without a lot of debate. There were some bills then that they, the Senate took, that they had passed, took the House version and basically just imprinted the Senate version on it and copied it and sent it back to the Senate and said, pass ors or don't pass anything. We don't, you know, either way, we're, or we'll see you in January. And three of those are concerning use of force. And I want to talk about this today. Um, there's a neck restraint bill that's uh, worth, that we're going to talk about for a second. Uh, the Senate has, the, the House didn't have this, but the Senate has a version about shooting in a motor vehicle. I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about the deadly force, use of deadly force uh, proposal that, again, is pending. It's passed the Senate. Uh, the Senate ver- rejected the House's version, but they have their own version that they sent to the House for consideration. So the House can either vote for it or um, can reject it and just and then we'd have nothing and we'd go back and wait until January. So we'll talk about those today. Um, so today I want to talk about uh, first, uh, we're going to talk about the neck restraint uh, rules and, and statutes that they're trying to pass. So the House had a version called 5069, and uh, the Senate had their version, which was part of their omnibus criminal justice reform. That's Senate Bill 5030. And the House bill, which originally was written by uh, Carol Foy, um, would make it a class six felony to use a neck restraint. And I'll define that for you in a second. And it's a criminal offense. There was no exception for it. So if it was used now, if you use it in self-defense, you would always, self-defense is always a complete defense to any crime. So, you know, you're not supposed to shoot a handgun in a street either or any kind of firearm in a city in a city or town street. But if you were doing it in self-defense, that would be a defense. So theoretically, you could raise self-defense, but it wasn't built into the statute. So an officer definitely could be prosecuted for using a neck restraint unless he had a valid uh, self-defense claim. The Senate version, though, uh, bakes it in. So the uh, and it also removes the criminal offense anyway. So it says it's not a criminal offense. It's not. A, it's just, it's basically a uh, disciplinary action if you improperly use it. Uh, 
So what are we talking about with neck restraint? And the definition is important because if you look at some of the other states that have defined, you know, neck restraints and so on, or have defined use of force, uh, for example, in New York, their version basically doesn't permit any law enforcement officer to do anything that would impede anyone's breathing. And that would include potentially putting somebody on the ground at all, like just putting somebody on the ground and putting them in handcuffs, because potentially, again, that compresses your chest and would prevent you somewhat from breathing or impede your breathing. So I don't know what they're going to do in New York, but Virginia, the proposal very clearly states neck restraint means the use of any body part or object to attempt to control or disable a person by applying pressure against the neck, including the trachea or carotid artery, with the purpose, and this is important, it's not just touching the neck, it's with the purpose, intent, or effect of controlling or restricting the person's movement or restricting the person's blood flow or breathing and that includes chokeholds, carotid restraints, and the lat- and latter vascular neck restraints. Um, so, you know, again, there's there's things that aren't considered chokeholds, right? I mean, there's a great pressure point right underneath your jaw that you can use to kind of get somebody, uh, and you can restrict their movement um, or control their movement by using that. And this bill would make that uh, prohibited. It states the use of it is prohibited. But there's an exception in the Senate version, and this is what they've sent to the House now. They rejected the House's version, and they said, pass ours or pass nothing. And the exception is, unless the use of a neck restraint is immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person, right? So if you're using this neck restraint, let's say, for example, the pressure point under the jaw, right? Um, Which is, again, you know, a tool that sometimes you might use to get somebody under control or somebody to move who's not wanting to move. Um, you're not going to kill them doing that or permanently injure them doing that, but you're definitely doing it to control their movement. If you're doing it to protect you or yourself or another person, then the use of that tool is uh, lawful. If you violate this section, though, you'll be, you'll be just subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer, or decertification, which is becoming a very powerful tool under the Senate and the House's uh, proposals. So that's the neck restraint portion. The Senate has also sent a proposal to the House, which the Senate has passed. The House didn't have this, but the Senate does, that provides that the willful discharge of a firearm by a law enforcement officer into or at a moving vehicle is prohibited. And again, there's an exception. Unless the discharge of a firearm is immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person. As we're going to see in a second... I mean, they didn't really need to put that in there because they've, they've clearly defined later on, and we'll talk about this in a moment, what deadly force is. Using a firearm, shooting at a moving vehicle is deadly force, and you can never use, right now the law is you can't use deadly force unless there is probable cause to believe that you have an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to you or somebody else. That's the law under Tennessee versus Garner. It's been since 1984. So they're putting this in here. If this is changing anyone's behavior, then there's a problem because you never could shoot at a gun. You can never shoot at a vehicle unless you had an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. So whatever. Anyway, they want to pass that. Um, there is also a duty to intervene that both the House and the Senate passed. The Senate rejected the House's version of a duty to intervene. And again, that had some pretty serious uh, felony consequences if you didn't follow it. And they've said, instead, the Senate has sent their version to the House. It requires a law enforcement officer who witnesses another law enforcement officer engaging or attempting to engage in the unlawful use of force against another person to intervene if the intervention is feasible to end the unlawful use of force or to prevent the future use of unlawful force. And it also requires a law enforcement officer to render aid as objectively permitted to any person injured as a result of that use of force. 
and um, you were required to report it uh, in accordance with the uh, employee, with your, with your policies and procedures, and there shall be no retaliation against you. If you don't comply with this, again, you're subject to disciplinary action, including dismissal, demotion, suspension, or transfer, or again, decertification, which is a powerful tool. The House's version, which the Senate rejected, so now it's dead, at least for this moment, made it a Class 6 felony to fail to intervene in deadly force and uh, misdemeanor to fail to intervene in non-deadly force. And if the deadly force led to uh, severe injury, then then it was a Class 4 felony to fail to intervene. And again, the Senate rejected those. The Senate, by the way, also rejected a proposal by Delegate Levine that was really strange. It provided, it would have provided that, and this is something the House passed, right? But the Senate rejected it. Any law enforcement officer who witnesses another person suffering from serious bodily injury or a life-threatening condition would be required to render aid. And, you know, I... I mean, again, this is, I don't understand. I mean, if you look at this section, what it says is a law enforcement officer who sees somebody who's got a life-threatening condition shall render aid. Well, I mean, you know, if you're walking through a hospital, you're going to see a lot of people with life-threatening conditions. I don't know. I mean, but anyway, the Senate rejected that. Um, so there you go. I mean, you know, if somebody you're working with has cancer, I've gone to visit people who've, you know, anyway, whatever, we're not going to do with something else. It's dead, so we're not going to talk about it. We are going to talk about the use of deadly force code section. That's what we'll talk about for the rest of uh, this podcast. So the House had a version and the Senate had a version. And the House rejected the Senate's version. Excuse me, the Senate rejected the House's version. The Senate has a version as part of their omnibus bill. And they've sent it to the House and it's up for consideration now. And what the Senate says is, what they're doing basically is defining deadly force. Now, you might remember, we talked a while ago, many podcasts ago, that California tried to do this and Colorado tried to do this, come in and define deadly force. And I mentioned also, when we talked about this in the case of Commonwealth versus Rankin, which was a prosecution of an officer in Portsmouth who uh, shot a suspect in a larceny investigation and was prosecuted for murder for shooting that suspect. They got in a fight, the suspect... Uh, disarm the officer of his taser, and ultimately the officer shoots and kills the suspect during the fight, and they prosecute him for murder, and he's convicted of manslaughter. And I talked about some gray areas, some confusion in Virginia law about, you know, criminal prosecution of police officers for the use of deadly force, that the California law would have made it a little bit more clear, frankly, uh, for that in that case about what the law was. So this is the Senate's version to attempt to do that, and I want to walk through it. Now, deadly force, we're talking about anything that causes serious bodily injury or death, so that doesn't change the law at all. And um, they, again, talk about neck restraints, but we're going to skip that since we've already talked about it and talk about the deadly force section. It says, a law enforcement officer shall not use deadly force against a person unless the law enforcement officer reasonably believes that deadly force is immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer or another person, other than the subject of the use of deadly force, from the threat of serious bodily injury or death. Okay, so this is a new definition. This would be the definition of when you're allowed to use deadly force in Virginia. You reasonably believe that deadly force is immediately necessary to protect you or somebody else from, the, from serious bodily injury or death. 
Now, compare that to Tennessee versus Garner, which is the rule that we all know that's baked into your directives and it's been around since 1985. The Tennessee versus Garner rule says is that you shall not use deadly force unless there's probable cause to believe that the suspect poses an imminent threat of serious physical harm either to the officer or someone else. So how are these different? Now, they've chosen to use different words for some reason, and so they don't say probable cause, they say reasonably believes. Um, generally in the law, I'll just tell you that reasonably believes is a much lower standard than probable cause. So they didn't choose probable cause for some reason. Um, that doesn't get you out from under the probable cause requirement of Tennessee versus Garner because obviously the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, so you still need probable cause to use deadly force even though the General Assembly sets the rule at reasonable belief. And the deadly force has to be used if a situation of Im deadly force being immediately necessary. Constitutional law says imminent, immediately and imminent. You know, we'll have to see if the courts think those words are different. Um, they don't appear to be different, but they are different words, so we'll see. Um, to break the officer or somebody else. Obviously, you can't use deadly force to stop somebody from using deadly force on themselves. That doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of cases that, you know, there's this argument, you know, somebody had a knife to their throat, so the officer shot him. I mean, again query whether that makes any sense, but the courts have been rejecting that kind of use of deadly force and that justification for a long time. So that first section doesn't really change the law at all. The next section says, if feasible, the law enforcement officer must provide a warning to the subject of the deadly force that he will use deadly force. So early on, there was even proposals, I think, from some people about using warning shots, that you required to use a warning shot. And obviously that would, you know, firing your firearm is use of deadly force. So firing warning shots is using deadly force by justification. And I think quickly people figured out that was a terrible idea. Now the rule would be, if the House passes this, if feasible, the law enforcement has to provide a warning. But again, the Fourth Circuit has required that for some time. So Virginia is enshrining that in law, but the Fourth Circuit has been requiring, if feasible, a warning shot to be provided. Again, if you're walking up to a scene where it's a robbery and the person says, I just got robbed at gunpoint from this guy and he said he would shoot me and kill me if he didn't give me his wallet. You said, what do he look like? And he said, well, he's a, uh, you know, he's over, he's got a black jacket and he's got a white hat and oh my God, there he is. And you look over and the guy's running across the street and you can see that he's got a gun and he turns and he runs and then you're running away and you're chasing after him. And before you can get in the distance of him, suddenly he pops out and he points the gun, you know, draws the gun and points it at you. Is it feasible to write a warning to him at that point? Right? I mean, at that point, you're out of time. You might say it while you're drop, drawing your firearm, but it's kind of you or him at that point. Um, but if feasible, you're supposed to provide a warning. And that's been the law, again, for some time in, in the Fourth Circuit. Um, and then the actions have to be reasonable in the totality of the circumstances, which, again, doesn't really change anything. And then there is a statute that this is, this is new. So it says, all other options have been exhausted or do not reasonably lend themselves to the circumstances. That's new. That's something that doesn't currently exist under the Fourth Circuit law. There is no requirement that you exhaust all other options. Again, you're still, however, there is the do not reasonably lend themselves to the circumstances. So, again, you've, you're running up to some guy who's just committed an armed robbery robbery, and before you can even get in contact with him, suddenly he pops out, draws his gun, and points it directly at you, um, you know, does that situation lend itself to some other option? You know, not not really. Um, so, but this is a new requirement. This is something that we knew. It also states, and this adds this, in determining if a law enforcement officer's use of deadly force is proper, the, prop, the following factors shall be considered. Number one, the reasonableness of the law enforcement officer's belief and the actions from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene at the time of the incident. 
not a change. That's how the courts have always looked at use of deadly force. So this is not a change. Uh, the totality of the circumstances, that's not a change. But it does state what the totality of circumstances should include. It includes the amount of time available to the officer to make a decision. So my guy in the alleyway with a gun, you know, that's going to play a factor. And whether the subject of the use of deadly force possessed or appeared to possess a deadly weapon, that should be taken into account, and whether he refused to comply with the officer's lawful order to surrender an object believed to be a deadly weapon prior to the law enforcement officer using deadly force. Now, it uses the word and, and so you might think, wait, so I, like, do I have to order the person to drop the gun first before? When you're making a list in the law, you use the word and instead of or when you're making the list. So I know this makes sense. What I'm going to say is going to sound insane, but and often means or. Okay, so when you're making a list, this is a, just another situation where, and this is another possibility. So he's got a gun, or he refuses to comply with the officer's to, order to surrender something that the officer believes to be a weapon prior to the officer using deadly force, right? So again, somebody, let's say, um, has said, you know, um, uh, get out of my house, you respond to a domestic call and an officer and the guy inside is, you know, holding a woman by her throat and he's got an object that looks like a gun up to her head and he says, if you don't get out of here, officer, I'm going to shoot her in the head right now. Get out of here or I'm going to shoot. I'm going to count to three and I'm going to shoot. You can't see what he's got in his hand, but you believe it to be a weapon, right? You don't know what it is. And let's say, you know, it ultimately turns out to be a hairbrush or something like that. Um, you believe it. So that takes into account. Um, this is new, what I'm going to read next. Whether the law enforcement officer engaged in de-escalation measures prior to the use of deadly force, including taking cover, waiting for backup, trying to calm the subject prior to the use of, of force, or using non-deadly force prior to the use of deadly force. So this is new. This is something new the courts require to take into consideration, whether the officer um, took cover. If you remember, you know, we talked about a U.S. Supreme Court case a while back where an officer responds to the scene and there's people shooting from inside a house at officers who are outside a house. He responds back up. He shoots inside the house, kills someone inside. And when the court, uh, the lower court had considered it, they'd said, well, he could have taken cover behind the wall that was outside. He wasn't in, in danger. And the U.S. Supreme Court rejected that and said, well, his fellow officers were in danger, somebody's shooting him, and we don't have to consider whether there's a wall. His use of deadly force is objectively reasonable, whether there's a wall there for him to hide behind or not. This would change that. This would say a court can take into consideration whether or not he could have hid behind that wall. Um, it's just a factor. It's one of many different factors, but the court's required to consider that factor. Um, this next one is also interesting, what the courts require to consider. Whether any conduct by the law enforcement officer prior to the use of deadly force intentionally increased the risk of a confrontation resulting in deadly force being used. So this is something that is a controversial argument in a lot of court cases, and it's come up a lot. You know, the Ninth Circuit has bought into it. A lot of other circuits have sort of ha have been really hesitant to adopt it. This concept that law enforcement officers might be res themselves responsible for increasing the risk of deadly force and therefore created a situation where they unlawfully used deadly force, where deadly force essentially wasn't necessary because they created the situation. And again, if you think about, you know, the situation of the guy inside the house with the, whatever the object is, um, up against the woman's head and saying, you know, you know, officer, if you don't leave here on account of three, I'm going to shoot her in the head. So if the officer in that situation, instead of stepping away, enters the house, does that 
increase the risk of confrontation resulting in the use of deadly force, right? So if the officer just stayed away, officer, don't come in here, I'm going to shoot her in the head. Officer, do not come in here, I'm going to shoot her in the head. Officer comes in anyway, right? And he sort of makes a calculation, well, this guy's probably going to hurt her anyway, I need to, you know, I need to do something to help her. This is staying outside is going to make her in more risk, so I'm going to step in. Does that increase the risk that the officer is going to have to use deadly force? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the court's required now to take that into consideration. The jury's required to take that into consideration. It doesn't mean the use of deadly force is unlawful. It just means that the court is, or the, the jury is required to consider it. Uh, and then the last thing the court uh, puts here is required to consider is the seriousness of the suspected crime, which obviously you'd always consider. Um, and that's a and that's a Graham versus Connor factor. I mean, that's been around since the 80s. So... This, again, is not a complete list of all the things that are to be considered. The, court, the, the statute would say it's the totality of the circumstances. It just says that here are some things that count within the totality of the circumstances. Some of those things now, as you've heard, are things that we would have considered anyway in the totality of the circumstances. Some of them are things that are new, that uh, if this were being a, if were a federal case under 42 U.S.C. 1983, um, they wouldn't be considered. But Virginia law would say you have to consider but what I want to focus on here is how would this change things for law enforcement officers in Virginia if this passes? And again, it's passed the Senate. It's before the House. The House is going to take it up this week, we think. Um, so how would it change the law in Virginia? And a good sort of lens to look that through, look at, look, at, look at that question through, is the Rankin case that I talked about before. So in an earlier podcast, we talked about this case called Rankin versus Commonwealth. It's a 2018 reported case from the Court of Appeals regarding a shooting in Portsmouth from several years ago. Um, and in that case, uh, what happens is that uh, an officer responds to a call re regarding a suspected shoplifting in a Walmart. He gets there and somebody identifies him, law prevention officer identifies him as a suspect. They go to the area um, while the person is, they, they see him, he's walking away at a brisk pace. He's got his hand in his pocket. The officer grabs him, um, tries to get his hand in his pocket. He wouldn't take his hands out of his pocket. He gets in a struggle. He says, man, take your hands out of your pocket. Or I'm going to tase you. They don't comply. Officer tases him. Uh, but the guy, uh, the taser doesn't work, and so the uh, the guy uh, knocks the taser out of the officer's hands. And at that point, then the officer grabs his gun and says, "Get on the ground." Um, the guy then takes a, you know, steps in like he's going to start attacking the officer, and the officer shoots and kills the guy. So the case goes to trial, and the case is prosecuted as a murder in Portsmouth. I, I, when I taught this case, or when I talked about this case on the last podcast episode, I said something that was not correct, and that was that the case was still pending for a ruling before the Virginia Supreme Court. What happened, I missed this. There was an unpublished, so unofficial sort of, um, you know, not secret, but it was on a different website, the, the opinion in the case. The, the Virginia Supreme Court did rule in this case and did affirm the conviction. They never gave a ruling on the issues that we were talking about. They basically said, we're only going to consider this one issue about whether this one piece of evidence was lawfully admitted, and essentially said, look, it doesn't matter whether it was admitted or not, and they affirmed the conviction without really addressing the issues before the Court of Appeals. So although we did get a ruling from the Virginia Supreme Court affirming the conviction, and that was in March of 2019, it never really answered the, uh, the questions that were brought up that the Court of Appeals struggled with and that we tried to figure out. Now, 
again, the issue was in this case that the Court of Appeals sort of struggled with was, you know, how do you instruct a jury in this case? When you're instructing murder, you usually give an instruction that says, all right, if you intend to, if you shoot somebody or use deadly force with a, with, with a firearm, it's presumed to be um, malicious and so it's presumed to be uh, second degree murder. Um, but it might be man- manslaughter if it is, uh, you know, simp- if it is a murder in, in the commission of an unlawful act that's not a felony, or it could be justifiable self-defense. And so you have to decide state of mind. Um, but if the officer acts out of without malice but in fear of harm, then the jury, essentially, in the eyes of the court of appeals, has to decide whether or not it's a self-defense case, and in other words, whether the use of force is reasonable in relation to the harm that is threatened. And as I mentioned before in the previous podcast, it's, gonna, it's a confusing statute, it's a confusing instruction to give because normally in Virginia, self-defense is either with fault or without fault. If it's without fault, if you didn't cause the confrontation, if you're just sort of minding your own business and someone attacks you, then you're allowed to use reasonable force in relation, it, it, reasonable force, that is to say force that matches the force that's used against you. So, um, and you don't have to retreat. There's no duty of retreat. We have a, we've had a castle doctrine, so to speak, in Virginia for at least a hundred years. You've never had to retreat to use lawful self-defense, as long as you're not at fault. But if you brought about the fight, then if, and somebody raises up the level of force. So I walk over and punch somebody in the face, but they pull out a gun and like, they're going to shoot me. I have to make my uh, desire for peace known and I have to retreat as far as possible before I'm permitted to use force in self-defense because I brought the fight on. So the question that the court kind of dodges is what kind of self-defense is it when an officer is trying to arrest somebody, which he's lawfully allowed to do, and then the person uses force to resist the officer? You know, again, what kind of self-defense instruction do you give to a jury? And I pointed out that the law about this is very... It's not really settled. There's no real clear way to instruct a jury. There's no clear legal argument. Is the law of self-defense the same for police as it is for everyone else? Even though we tell police, go out there and put handcuffs on that guy and throw him back of a car and take him to the court so the court can decide whether what he did was lawful or not. I mean, so I don't know. So this statute would answer that question. This statute in this case here would say, all right, let's look at Officer Rankin's actions, right? Um, He used deadly force. There's no question, right? He shot this individual. And so he uh, was permitted to use deadly force only if he reasonably believed that the deadly force was immediately necessary to protect him or another person from the threat of serious bodily injury or death. So essentially, we would adopt the Tennessee versus Garner standard in Virginia and make it a Virginia state standard. Um, even like in a, in a murder case, you, that's the standard that you would apply. And he would be required to give a warning if feasible in that situation. So there'd be a question of would be feasible when he drew his firearm to give a warning to the individual or did the individual close the distance before he could ever give a warning. And then his actions would have to be reasonable under the totality of circumstances. All of his other options would have to be exhausted or reasonably did not lend themselves to the situation. So what were his other options? Well, he could have used a taser, but he exhausted that because he used the taser. It didn't work on the guy and the guy disarmed him of it. Um, he could have used OC spray, but OC obviously wouldn't, he couldn't get it and get it drawn in that time that he was in. Um, could he have retreated, right? Could he have simply backed away from the situation? Could, you know, well, I don't know. I don't, you know, we'd have to look at the facts, right? And then the court would have to consider um, the reasonableness of his belief and the actions from his perspective, right? Which again is the law, but, uh, and that's the law of self-defense. So that's not a big change, but at least we have it clearly stated. 
And then you look at the totality of circumstances. So you look at the amount of time for him to make a decision, right? He's within a matter of a couple of feet from this guy, so not a lot of time. Does he appear to have a deadly weapon? No, he does not. Does he refuse to comply with a lawful order to, to render something that looks like a deadly weapon? No. But you have, so it doesn't foreclose the use of deadly force, but it says you got to consider that. Um, does he try to engage in de-escalation measures prior to the use of deadly force? Does he try to take cover? No. Does he wait for backup? No. Does he try to calm the suspect prior to the use of force? No. Does he use non-deadly force prior to the use of deadly force? Yeah, he uses a taser and it doesn't work and the guy disarms him of it. Um, does he, now this is the confusing one, does whether any conduct by the officer prior to the use of deadly force intentionally increase the risk of a confrontation resulting in deadly force being used? Yeah, he tries to arrest the guy for stealing from the Walmart. I mean, he's identified as the suspect and he goes over and grabs the guy. The guy doesn't want to be grabbed because he would like to get away with his larceny and he then struggles with him and then he tases, he tries to tase him, which again increases the likelihood of a confrontation. Um, so, you know, here again, we're sort of back into this territory of, you know, what does it mean that we ask officers to do these things? I mean, we expect officers from time to time to arrest people who commit crimes. We haven't given up on that yet. Um, so, but it's only a factor. You just take that factor in along with everything else. And then the seriousness of the suspected crime. Here it's larceny, right? Um, if it were a robbery, would it be different? Absolutely. But it's a larceny from Walmart. Um, so the seriousness of that is very low. And we would take that into consideration, right? Now, so notice in the old Rankin case, you wouldn't necessarily take into account the seriousness of the suspected crime because you're just kind of struggling with this old self-defense instruction. But here, the seriousness of the suspected crime would become part probably of the jury instruction and the jury would be required to consider it. If the crime was very serious, you know, robbery or, you know, domestic violence, threatened, you know, attempted murder, that kind of thing, the jury would be required to consider that. But here, it's petty larceny. The jury is required to consider that. So that is how I think this statute would change things if it passes the House. Um, and I hope that's helped you at least understand what the issues are and how the, uh, the, the various uh, bodies are dealing with it. I don't know that this is going to be the statute. I don't know this is what's going to pass. Um, it is something that passed the Senate. A version of it passed the House, but the, the Senate ver rejected the House's version. So if anything passes the special session, it looks like it's going to be this version, um, the House could stand its ground and just say, nope, then, then we're just not going to do it and we'll just deal with it in January, but that remains to be seen. And again, if that happens, then all this goes back up in January and we have these conversations again. So for today, um, that's all that I got for you. I hope it was interesting. Um, if you like this podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Um, but for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.